This is the ministry from Sovereign Grace Reformed Church in Tiverton, Devon, United Kingdom. Our reading this evening is 1 Timothy and chapter 6. 1 Timothy and chapter 6 and we commence at verse 1. Let as many servants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honour, that the name of God and his doctrine be not blasphemed. And they that have believed in masters, let them not despise them because they are brethren, but rather do them service, because they are faithful and beloved, partakers of the benefit. These things teach and exhort. If any man teach otherwise and consent not to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which is according to godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing, but doting about questions and strifes of words, whereof cometh envy, strife, railings, evil surmisings, perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds, and destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness. From such withdraw thyself, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and raiment, let us be therefore there with content. But they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and hurtful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith, and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. But thou, O man of God, flee these things, and follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness. Fight the good fight of faith, lay hold on eternal life, whereunto thou art also called, and hast professed a good profession before many witnesses. I give thee charge in the sight of God, who quickeneth all things, and before Christ Jesus, who before Pontius Pilate witnessed a good confession, that thou keep this commandment without spot, unrebukable, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which in his times he shall show, who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who only hath immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, whom no man has seen nor can see, to whom be honour and power everlasting. Amen. Charge them that are rich in this world, that they be not high-minded, nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God, who giveth us richly all things to enjoy, that they do good, 
that they be rich in good works, ready to distribute, willing to communicate, laying up in store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come, that they may lay hold on eternal life. O Timothy, keep that which is committed to thy trust, avoiding profane and vain babblings and oppositions of science falsely so-called, which some professing have erred concerning the faith. Grace be with thee. Amen. As ever, we trust that the Lord will add his own special blessing to the reading of his precious and infallible word. Amen. Well, this evening we are undertaking our eighth and final study in the first letter of Paul to Timothy. And God willing, it's my intention that we shall study Paul's second letter to Timothy on future Tuesday evenings when I'm speaking here and following that, his letter to Titus. And these three epistles, as I've mentioned before, are often referred to as the pastoral epistles, perhaps not only because they are both addressed to some early Christian pastors, but also because they give us guidance as to both the qualifications and the responsibilities of those that leads, who lead God's churches. Now both Timothy and Titus were Paul's sons in the faith and they both had pastoral responsibility. Timothy at Ephesus and Titus on the island of Crete. And we know that Paul wrote to them with the intention of seeking to help them to ensure that whatsoever took place in those churches for which they were responsible would be acceptable in the sight of God. And we know that one of Paul's reasons for writing to Timothy, as we see it explained in chapter 3, was this. These things write I unto thee, hoping to come unto thee shortly. But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. In our last study in February, we considered how people within the church should treat one another. Older men and women are to be treated with the respect that befits their age. Younger men are to be treated as brothers and younger women with special respect. And we saw how this applies in the context of church discipline, but also in our ongoing relationships with one another. We also considered in our last study how, how the church has a role to play in caring for those in need. Although we now live in a welfare state, this doesn't mean that the church should conclude that it no longer has any responsibility to help widows and orphans in particular. We saw that the scripture says this, pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. And the scripture also says, as we have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially unto them who are of the household of faith, which shows us that churches should help widows and orphans where they can, giving priority to those connected with the church. But 
helping those in need outside of the church as well where appropriate. Now, much of the passage we were studying in our last study was about the responsibility for the care of those many widows in Ephesus. And we saw how Paul advised Timothy that the church needed to be selective as to who was to be helped. Both old and pious widows were to be helped, but younger widows were to be encouraged to remarry in the Lord. However, the families of widows should be the first to help them, leaving the church to care for those who were truly desolate, those who had no one to help them, those, we might say, who were widows indeed. We saw that believers have a responsibility to make provision for the care of their own families, and perhaps more widely, for Paul wrote this, If any provide not for his own, and especially for those of his own house, he hath denied the faith, and is worse than an infidel. You know, far too many old people nowadays are shunted off to care homes because their own families are unwilling rather than unable to care for them. Some people even moved home so that they wouldn't have to care for their parents. Well, children can requite, requite their parents by paying them back to some extent by looking after them in their old age. And finally, in our last study, we considered how important it is to respect and adequately remunerate God's ministers. Those who rule well are to be counted worthy of double honour, especially they who labour in the word and doctrine. But we need also to remember that elders themselves can sometimes go astray. If an accusation of a serious nature is ever made against an elder, then a proper investigation should be carried out. If it's proven that an elder has been guilty of serious sin, then he should be publicly rebuked as a deterrent to others. It may be possible to avoid that sort of situation arising by in the first place being more careful in the selection of men for eldership. Where time is taken before approving someone, then this should bring the shortcomings of unsuitable candidates to light. But suitable candidates' qualities will also come to the fore. Now tonight we shall be considering the whole of the last chapter of 1 Timothy and we'll see how we are to oppose any suggestion that gain equates to godliness. For the truth is that godliness with contentment is great gain. We'll also see how Paul charged Timothy to strive after godliness himself and to charge others in the churches to do the same, to trust in the living God rather than in uncertain riches. First of all, Paul has something to say about employees who are believers and who might be employed by unbelievers or by believers in some cases. In New Testament times, <coughs> and until fairly recently in this country, there were what we might call many master and servant relationships. Although such relationships still exist to some extent in our own day, 
we need to understand that the principles taught here apply to employer-employee relationships being, as it were, the most common form of working relationship today. Paul wrote this, Let as many servants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honour, that the name of God and his doctrine be not blasphemed. And they that have believed in masters, let them not despise them because they are brethren, but rather do them service, because they are faithful and beloved, partakers of the benefit. These things teach and exalt. Servants in New Testament times were often the property of their masters. They were quite often slaves. And this may be why Paul refers to them as being under the yoke. Irrespective of what we may feel about bond service, it was a fact of life in Bible times. And those slaves who had become free in Christ, who had become free from the bondage of sin, may have harboured a desire to be free from their bond service as well. Those who had unbelieving masters may also have been tempted to treat them with contempt. However, Paul taught that believing bond servants should treat their masters with respect, since this would be a good witness. You see, if unbelieving masters could accuse their Christian bond servants of having a rebellious spirit, then this would reflect badly on their heavenly master. And that's why Paul wrote this, that as many servants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honour, that the name of God and his doctrine be not blasphemed. And should not the same principle apply to Christians at work in our own day? Christians at work should seek to be a good witness in all that they do. And this can include not being party to criticism of the boss or the company for whom they work. It might be difficult to explain to a co-worker why you won't join them in what might be perhaps justifiable criticism, but it might also provide you with an extra opportunity to witness to the great change that the Lord has made in your outlook on life and on work. Now, unlike slaves, you also have the right to leave any job with which you become uncomfortable. But it may be that you like your job. It may be that your employers are good employers. This was likely to have been the case with those slaves at Ephesus who were blessed in that they were employed by believing masters. However, we know that familiarity can breed contempt. And it appears from what Paul wrote that some believers who had believing masters didn't afford those masters the respect that they deserved. And this is why Paul wrote this. They that have believing masters, let them not despise them because they are brethren, but rather do them service because they are faithful and beloved partakers of the benefit. Did you know that there is a thing called Freemasonry? Freemasonry and a situation can arise where a person in a senior position in a workforce can be beholden to someone who is in a lesser position within the same workforce and all because of the hierarchy that exists in Freemasonry. Now what would be the position if an elder 
or a deacon work for the same employer as did a member of their congregation, where that member was in fact higher up the management ladder. Would that church officer expect to receive preferential treatment? Well, the very fact that Paul felt constrained to write as he did shows us that he was aware that problems of this nature could have arisen at Ephesus, though not necessarily involving church officers. And his directive was that all believing servants should respect their masters no matter what their spiritual standing may have been. Paul wrote this, these things teach and exalt or encourage. Timothy was to adopt these guidelines so that the church couldn't be accused of fostering a rebellious spirit in believing servants who attended the church. Any minister's teaching must be sound, whether it be on subjects such as an employee's attitude towards his employer or on doctrinal matters. Paul wrote this, If any man teach otherwise and consent not to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which is according to godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing, but doting about questions and strifes of words, whereof cometh envy, strife, railings, evil surmisings, perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds, and destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness. From such withdraw thyself. Now, here we see Paul doing not telling Timothy to be on the lookout for any deviation from sound doctrine and to separate himself from any whose doctrine was unsound. There is a body of doctrine that has stood the test of time based on the Lord's own recorded words or on those written by men inspired by God the Holy Spirit. And you know, although believers may, and they do, differ on what we might call secondary matters, there can be no agreement to differ on doctrinal fundamentals. Believers can and do differ on matters such as eschatology, perhaps on mode of baptism, perhaps on church government, but there are some things on which we just cannot agree to differ which we must separate over if need be. There is doctrine that is according to godliness, but there is also doctrine that is ungodly, based on erroneous thinking and teaching. At Ephesus, there were those who denied or perverted the apostolic faith, those who conceitedly thought that they knew better than the apostles, but in reality their knowledge was not true knowledge, at all. And we see that Paul describes such poor teachers in the following manner. Proud, knowing nothing, but doting about questions and strifes of words, whereof cometh envy, strife, railings, evil surmisings, perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds, and destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness. And we see that these men love to propagate their own pet theories, resulting in unprofitable and unholy arguments. Now there is a place for debating the meaning of scripture, 
and were not to refuse to talk about some matters just because they might be controversial. However, we have all come across people who seem to want to spend the, well, almost their whole lives arguing the toss about things that are neither essential to salvation nor the means of living a better Christian life. And often they think that they, and only they, have a monopoly on the truth. Could this be true of any of us here this evening? Is it possible that we dote about questions and strifes of words? And if we do, what are our motives for doing so? Are we, are we proud of our ability to discuss obscure doctrinal points? But do we fail to live useful Christian lives at the same time? Those men who loved to argue the toss at Ephesus had corrupt minds. They were destitute of the truth, believing that their religiosity would be a means somehow of financial gain for them. And they were prepared to adopt a veneer of godliness in order to enrich themselves. Now, I've often said this, we are justified in being suspicious of any minister who has or seeks after a lavish lifestyle. Whenever the scriptures speak of those who have corrupted true doctrine and who are seeking after financial gain, I'm reminded of some of those false teachers in America and elsewhere who have beguiled literally thousands with their teaching that God wants all believers to be rich, equating godliness with gain. And this pernicious doctrine must be opposed. Now what is of great gain to believers is a godly life accompanied by contentment. As Paul wrote, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and raiment, let us be there with content. Believers are to learn to be content with such things as the Lord decides that they should have. There are so many people, including some believers, who, as it were, spend their lives building up their worldly assets rather than concentrating on building up that which will benefit their souls. We know, do we not, that the Lord Jesus said the following words, Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do break through nor steal. Do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And here, of course, we have a good question to ask ourselves, do we not? Where would we say that our hearts lie? Now, we know when babies are born into this world, they bring no possessions with them. And when we die, we leave all our possessions behind. Even the wisdom of this world says that you can't take it with you when you die. The parable of the rich fool tells us how that man said these words. Soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said unto him, thou fool. This night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then who shall these things be which thou hast provided? 
So is he that layeth up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And when Paul wrote to the Philippians, he wrote these words. I have learned in whatsoever state I am, therewith to be content. I know both how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things, I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. You see, Paul had learnt that great truth, that contentment lies not in what we have, but in our submission to the will of God for our lives. We can never be truly content as believers unless we seek to be in the centre of God's will. Even when it's God's will that we might suffer deprivation, even as Paul suffered. Could we all say, even if we only have the basic necessities of life, such as food and clothing, that we will be content, or are we ever striving for something better? If we are so striving, at what point would we become content? We shall see in just a minute that it's not necessarily wrong to have possessions, but it's our attitude towards what we possess that determines whether or not we are content or discontent. You know, many people in the world dream of being rich, either as a result of their own efforts or possibly by winning the lottery. However, Paul wrote this, but they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and hurtful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some have coveted after they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Well, as it's often been necessary to point out, money itself isn't the root of all evil. It's the love of money which is. Avarice is destructive and those who love money and that which money can buy are on the road that leads to perdition. Avarice leads to all manner of sins. Is it not perhaps the primary sin which leads to all sorts of subsidiary sins? And you know, we're not to suppose that believers are always immune from this sin of avarice. For when Paul refers to those who have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows, could he not have had in mind believers as well as unbelievers? Haven't we known those whose Christian lives have been marred because of their desire to better themselves materially? Has it ever been true of us? And how can we fight against it? Well, we have the answer before us, do we not? Paul wrote this to Timothy. But thou, O man of God, flee these things and follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life, whereunto thou art also called and hast professed a good profession before many witnesses. Now when the Apostle refers to Timothy as a man of God, 
He isn't just reminding Timothy that he is a believer, but he's also reminding him that he was God's man at Ephesus, just as the Old Testament prophets were God's men at the times and in the places where they lived. And Timothy was to set an example by fleeing from avarice and by going in the opposite direction in pursuit of those virtues which would build him up in his faith as opposed to that which could lead to the shipwreck of his faith. We see that he was to pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience and meekness rather than material gain. And we are all to do likewise. This is how we can fight against avarice by going in the opposite direction and pursuing those things that promote godliness. And we are to account having such virtues as great gain. Now the fight against avarice is just part of the fight that all believers should be engaged in. So when Paul tells his son Timothy to fight the good fight of faith, he is, as it were, covering all the bases. In this life, those who have true faith will be engaged in battle constantly because of their faith. And the battle will end only when we pass from this world. Paul told Timothy this, Lay hold on eternal life whereunto thou art also called. And this meant that Timothy was to fully engage with the reality of his having been elected to eternal life and that his ministry was to be centred on the reality of eternal life for all those who put their trust in Christ and eternal damnation for all those trusted, trusting in anything else. Timothy had started off well, having already taken a public stand for Christ, having made a good profession before many witnesses, and he was to continue in that same vein. But now we come to two charges, one to Timothy and one which Timothy is to give to others. So firstly Paul says, I give thee charge in the sight of God who quickeneth all things and before Christ Jesus who before Pontius Pilate witnessed a good confession that thou keep this commandment without spot, unrebukable until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which in his times he shall show, who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who only hath immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, whom no man hath seen nor can see, to whom be honour and power everlasting. Amen. Now, some hypothesize that when Paul wrote of how Timothy had made a good profession before many witnesses, he was referring to that which had taken place at Timothy's baptism or his ordination or both. And they link this to the charge which Paul now gives him. They do this because the charge seems to incorporate part of an early creed, which believers may have been required to affirm at their baptisms and also for those entering the ministry at their ordination. And they believe that the commandment to which Paul refers is the charge that was laid upon Timothy at his ordination. And this hypothesis had a ring of truth about it 
And so it seems that what Paul was doing here was reminding Timothy of that with which he had already been charged. And Paul, notice, invokes both the first and second persons of the Godhead as witnesses to this renewed charge to Timothy. And here we have, do we not, a reminder that God the Father is the sustainer of all life. We have seen in previous studies in Timothy that God is the saviour or preserver of all men. And here we're reminded that he's also the sustainer of every living thing. We're also reminded that when any of us make a profession of faith before men, we are thus following in the Saviour's footsteps who testified of the truth before that man, Pontius Pilate, who then delivered him up to be crucified. And we see that Paul charged Timothy to keep the commitment he had made without spot, unrebukable, blamelessly. And Timothy was to do this until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, meaning not that the Saviour's return was imminent, although many believe that, but that there could be no let-up, no let-up in Timothy's stand. In Christian circles nowadays, we sometimes use that expression, do we not, until the Saviour comes or calls. And we do this in recognition of the truth that no man can say, when the Lord will return. It may be in our lifetime, equally we may be called home before then. And we see from what Paul wrote next that he was fully aware that the time of the Lord's return was unknowable. He wrote, which in his times he shall show, showing us that the time of the Lord's return was yet to be revealed. And we see that Paul completed his charge to Timothy with this doxology who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who only hath immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, whom no man has seen nor can see, to whom be honour and power everlasting. Amen. Our triune God is the blessed and only potentate, the sovereign Lord of all, with absolute power, over all things and he alone is omnipotent he is the king of kings and the lord of lords surpassing all worldly rulers and raising them up or casting them down even as he sees fit his dominion is boundless and all things are subject to him he alone has immortality inasmuch as he is the fount of eternal life he bestows immortality on those he chooses. As one well-known hymn puts it, he dwells in light inaccessible, hid from our eyes. Only to him is honour and power to be ascribed, for he alone is worthy to be worshipped. And even as the Apostle closed his doxology with an Amen, I trust that we can also acknowledge our agreement to all that he said by also saying Amen to those things. Well, having considered the renewed charge to Timothy, we now come to the charge which Timothy was to give to others. Charge them that are rich in this world, that they be not high-minded, nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God, who giveth us richly all things to enjoy, that they do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to distribute, willing to communicate, 
laying up in store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come, that they may lay hold on eternal life. As I said earlier, it's not wrong to possess things, and we know, do we not, from the scriptures, that God does bless some of his people with material wealth, sometimes great material wealth. However, we also know that wealth brings with it accountability, and we must also never trust in that which might be taken away from us. Timothy was to remind any wealthy believers that their wealth didn't entitle them to feel that they were in any way superior to others. All that any of us have, we are to regard as having received at God's hand. And God can allow what we have to be taken from us, as Job discovered. Riches are uncertain. And we see the truth of this from time to time with volatile stock markets in various places around the world. We've seen that in the last couple of days. Our trust must ever be in the living God who provides us with many good things to enjoy. As one commentator has pointed out, no good purpose is served by claiming, as some ascetics do, that God didn't intend us to enjoy pleasurable things in this life. For he gives us richly all things to enjoy, but we are never to abuse that goodness. And if God has blessed us with wealth, then we are to use that wealth in God's service, doing good with that which has been entrusted to us. Are not believers to be generous, rich in good works, willing to share, willing to give some of our wealth away? Is this not what being ready to distribute and willing to communicate means? Those who use what God has given them to help others will be making a godly investment. They will be, as Paul wrote, laying up in store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. Those who have been elected to eternal life should evidence that fact by the way that they live their lives. And thus, well of believers will testify of their salvation by charitable works. Now Paul's final words to Timothy in this first epistle were these. O Timothy, keep that which is committed to thy trust, avoiding profane and vain babblings and oppositions of science falsely so called, which some professing have heard concerning the faith. Grace be with thee. Amen. So here we see Paul's affection for Timothy by the manner in which he addresses him. He wrote, O Timothy. It was a heartfelt appeal from a father to a son in the faith. And thus we see how vital Paul felt it was for Timothy to guard that which had been entrusted to him, namely sound doctrine, the truth accompanying the gospel of God's grace. And can we not see how we too have been entrusted with sound doctrine? When we sadly see once sound fellowships departing from the truth, when we see a continual spiritual downgrade in our land, are we not beholden to defend that which has been committed to us? At Ephesus we see that there were profane and vain babblings 
and oppositions of science falsely so-called, referring to the ungodly and the wholly unprofitable arguments bounded, banded about by people who were seeking to contradict the true gospel, including people who once professed to be true disciples of Christ. They had been overcome by error, they had made shipwreck of their faith. And Timothy was to shun the company of those whose conversation was profane and vain, which ties in with Paul's recommendation, which we saw earlier in verse 5, that he should withdraw himself from men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth. Now Paul's final words to Timothy were these, Grace be with thee. Amen. Paul's prayer was that Timothy would continue to know the grace of God in his life, to enable him to continue to be a faithful witness and teacher at Ephesus. And this is what we need if we are to be useful in God's service. The grace of God. We cannot and must not rely on our own strength, but on the grace of God alone. Well, we've not only come to the end of this evening's study, but also to the end of 1 Timothy. And from our study this evening, we've seen the importance of Christian employees having the right attitude towards their employers. We've also seen that doting about questions and strifes of words is at best unprofitable and at worst ungodly. We've been reminded, something that we need to be reminded of, that godliness with contentment is great gain and that rather than being covetous we should be prepared to share what we have with others and have we not seen again the danger of succumbing to false teaching the church at Ephesus was plagued by false teaching and, and we may think that this could never happen to us but history shows us that false teaching is insidious it, it creeps up on you and it's ruined many fellowships that were once known for their soundness. So may we, like Timothy, strive to be faithful in keeping that which has been committed to our trust. Amen. Feel free to contact us at Sovereign Grace Church in Tiverton. Email us at grace2seekers at gmail.com. That's grace2seekers at gmail.com. Alternatively, you can visit our website at www.sovereigngracereformedchurch.co.uk.